0: Welcome to another episode of acts of the blood god us gamers official rpg podcast i'm your host cat bailey with me as always my lovely co-host nadia oxford hello cat hello everybody happy pokemon week happy pokemon week indeed we had a very busy week over at us gamer writing about all things pokemon celebrating the 20th anniversary of the game's release in the us we touched upon our memories of that time briefly in the previous Mm -hmm. episode uh if i if i may say so nadia i think that our pokemon week was way better than a certain other website that i'm gonna just leave nameless
1: yeah uh i am i am with you on that um because uh we put a lot of we did a lot of research and stuff didn't we? we had like some great interviews we had uh like, I, I talked to the uh, Joe who runs Cerebi and he's been running it since 1999. And, you know, just like what went into re- running a, a website then versus now. And it's some really insightful stuff going on.
0: Yes, and we also briefly talked to Junichi Masuda, who talked about the Pokemon that he was kind of afraid wouldn't work in North America. I looked back on a period when Taros was king of Pokemon competitive battling, and uh, we also ranked the top 25 Pokemon, and you won't believe which Pokemon came in number one, Nadia. <laughs> people probably won't. I believe it, but some people probably won't. I totally believe it. I mean, come on. Uh, spoiler alert, it's Q from Pokemon Sun and Moon. <laughs> Screw you, original 151. We're going to pick one from the latest generation. <laughs> yeah, but we did have a lot of uh, Gen 1-ers on that list, to be honest. Yeah, I think Gen 1 definitely was at the top, <laughs> had the most. I think Gen yeah, 1 was actually Mimikyu... the next two after
1: that. <laughs> Yeah, Mimikyu is, like, a well-earned spot, though.
0: But Buzzswole also had the (laughs) it's much-deserved place on this list. Yeah, Mike wouldn't participate in helping us with the list
1: until we guaranteed Buzzswole was on there. And we're like,
0: yep, he's already on there. Oh, that's not true, actually. I said that Mike was like, is Buzzswole on this list? I said, yes. And he said, yes, you have done God's work (laughs) or something like that. I'm just paraphrasing Mike. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I'm, I'm sure that the other site did really good work as well. But I was shaking my head, Nadia, when I saw them reacting with hatred towards certain Pokemon and saying that they should be scrubbed from existence. We don't hate at US Gamer. We love. No, we, we love there is only Pokemon.
1: love at US Gamer, especially for, uh, I'm sorry, like, they said get rid of Gyarados. Like, what yes. what is the loss? how can you get rid of gyarados come on yeah, that, that that gyarados is one of the most iconic pokemon ever that and oh digimon is better than pokemon like the anime which is mm.
0: uh uh tiss uh, tis tis, tis. Uh, people were telling me on twitter that the season one of pokemon was not good hello that episode that season had bye bye butterfree and electroshock showdown <laughs> that's right that was a th- those are two iconic episodes
1: right there especially bye bye butterfree
0: You know, I'm not going to dwell too long on the Pokemon anime, but the thing that I always liked about it was that it ended with Ash losing. And the reason he lost was because he hadn't truly defeated the most powerful opponent of all, himself. He lost a Mere matchup. That's right. Like, his fight against Richie, who was basically Ash, but having their act together... (laughs) <laughs> was essentially the same as Mega Man fighting himself, or Link in Shadow Link.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, he still hasn't won, to be fair, but,
0: uh, or maybe he yeah, did. Yeah, well, I... now it's just obnoxious. Get it together, Ash. Yeah, come on, Ash, get your shit together. You've got all these legendary Pokemon that are extremely strong, you have the most OP Pikachu ever, and you always lose in the semifinals. Ash chokes. Ash is a choker. I'm surprised that Ash doesn't coach the Minnesota Vikings because that guy does not know how to win a championship. Ooh, shade. Yeah, well, I, shade I'm at your own team. Shade at my own uh, <laughs> crappy one-two-and-one one team. <laughs> uh, They'll get there someday. Been a cat. Good start to the season, Nadia. It's not being a good start to the season. Oh, I'm sorry. Next year, I'm allowed to talk about, Matt, I'm, a, I'm allowed to talk about the Vikings, because as we've established, football is really just an RPG with large, beefy men. All
1: sports are RPGs with well, large, beefy men. Except, well, I don't know, are baseball players large and beefy? I guess not.
0: They used to be, but then they yeah. cut down on PEDs, <laughs> and now they're yeah. just large. Yeah. They're not as beefy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, Nadia, let's talk about an RPG that came out Last week on the PC, Xbox One, PS4, and Switch, this is a game that a lot of people have been wait- talk- waiting for, that would be mm-hmm. Valkyria Chronicles 4, and then also, a little later, we're having an interview with RPG legendary writer Chris Avalone, who has worked on Fallout 2, Planescape Torment, and other legendary RPGs, he's currently working on Pathfinder Kingmaker, so we had a really good conversation. We we talked about things like uh the the alignment, the D&D alignment of the US gamer staff. <laughs> I remember having uh, that conversation. Yes, uh, that was fun. That uh, was spoiler alert, I'm lawful evil cuz if you're in management you're an automatically lawful evil. It's just That is true. You little... are definitely lawful evil. Uh, we talked about Fallout 2 cuz it's actually the 20th anniversary of Fallout 2's release wow Nadia. and Pokemon it came out 20 years ago and uh Chris has some thoughts on how he feels Fallout 2 holds up he he's actually a little disappointed in it even though most people would oh, say really? it's a classic these days yeah. yeah and then Fallout 2 uh and also speaking of Fallout you should go check out if you're interested in Fallout go to check out the site we got a really cool article that should be going up around the time of this podcast it's uh by a freelance writer and it's a history of the pit boy and they talked to an industrial engineer like one of the original designers of the pit boy it's great art interview so
1: that's pretty cool yeah it is definitely i love the pit boy i love vault boy all that whole like 50s aesthetic like this is what would have happened if we bombed ourselves into oblivion back you know in this alternate future
0: yeah, the Pip-Boy is pretty rad, though. When the Pip-Boy came out on Fallout 4, and it was that huge thing that you could attach to your arm, and people were like, that is the coolest thing you can stick. You can stick your smartphone into this hunk of molded plastic. And then immediately iPhone iPhones got 20% bigger, and they wouldn't fit <laughs> into it anymore. <laughs> I forgot about that. That was great. Yeah, I felt bad for people. and now, And now I'm sure, like, for most people, this thing is just laying around in their closet like a a hunk of worthless plastic pretty much which yeah that's uh, that's the fate of most swag to be honest in about a month we're gonna in less than a month we're gonna be having the fallout 76 beta which is very exciting i cannot wait for that all right nadia let's talk about valkyria chronicles 4 so uh my review is up i gave it a four out of five for the most part, I really liked it. I played the Nintendo Switch version. The technical mm-hmm. problems that I was afraid of did not quite rear their head. I think it looks much better in handheld mode than it does on TV mode. When you're playing a Nintendo right. Switch, it looks way better on PS4. Nadia, I forget, did you get a PS4 code? Uh, actually, I got the Switch code. Oh, okay, you got a Switch code. Yes. And how far did you get out of curiosity? Because I know you've been kind of like noodling away at it on and off for like a month
1: yeah i've been i'm actually uh at the point where how
0: far are you like roughly like what chapter
1: oh chapter three.
0: Oh, chapter three okay so you're not very far at all actually but no but I, i'm i am on my way but you're in like one of the big early sections of the game there's a huge fight that's kind of this big multi-part fight and i think chapter three or chapter four no i think it's chapter four so uh-huh but what do you think of it so far
1: I largely agree with your review. It is uh, pretty much the sequel that we wanted to the original Valkyria Chronicles. Uh, It's head and heels over Revolution, thank God. And um, I believe, uh, I remember you were saying to someone at PAX about how you were saying, oh, it's quite a bit like the original Valkyria Chronicles. And someone else we were talking to said, yes, but what other games are like Valkyria Chronicles? And just Valkyria Chronicles. So really, if you're a fan of the first game, XCOM. this is probably what you've been waiting for. Did you say XCOM?
0: Yeah. <laughs> XCOM is a lot <laughs> like Valkyria Chronicles. Though <laughs> not enough uh, anime, Cat. Though Valkyria Chronicles isn't an isometric RPG, uh tactics game. Right. It uh does not have create a character, build a character. It is has established mm-hmm. pre rolled characters. And yeah, no, it is Fairly different from your typical tactics game. So, yeah, getting a game like Valkyria Chronicles back in my life is really nice. Uh, I I don't know if I talked about this on the podcast. I had worried that Valkyria Chronicles 4 wouldn't hold up. Right. I think you mentioned that. Because... So, let's cast our minds back to 2008, shall we? hmm The original Valkyria Chronicles came out, and it was awesome. Right. Like, it was really cool... It was beautiful. Uh, it just shined on HDTVs with its incredible watercolor graphics. Uh, right. But moreover, it was one of the very few technically great Japanese games to come out in this period, where, frankly, a lot of Japanese developers were really struggling to come to mm-hmm. grips yeah. with the sudden shifts of technology that accompanied the rise of the PS3. And it didn't help that the PS3 was just a dog, to, just a bear to uh to program for right so as a result a lot of japanese games did not look good so we held on to anything we possibly could in this era valkyria chronicles was one of those games that's why it became a cult hit because people like yours truly just keep beating the drum for it over and over and over again be like no this game is really good please god play this game well i actually played
1: it for the first time when it was remastered for the ps4 and that was my first experience with it and i loved it
0: yeah, it was really good, right? Yeah, absolutely. I really enjoyed your article. I mean, I, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that you're Jewish. And yes, I really really enjoyed...
1: <laughs> I'm Jewish. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I, I think I mentioned that Nadia and I are friends in Pokemon Go, and she lives in the Jewish district in Toronto, and she's always sending me presents from, like, synagogues yeah. and such. Yeah, <laughs> because we don't have... I feel like this is very on-brand for Nadia. <laughs> it totally is. But... I really enjoyed your perspective on uh, the Darksons in Valkyria yes. Chronicles that you wrote for your personal blog.
1: Yeah, and that's um, the Darksons. Of course, are, are a factor in Valkyria Chronicles Four, so they're kind of a um, an ethnic group that I, I really kind of enjoy working with or working like fighting with because uh, for for various reasons that I go into on in that article I wrote, but. Uh, uh, one thing that actually you mentioned in your review that's uh, still relevant to Valkyrie Chronicles 4 is that you do have, um, even though you're the good guys, quote unquote, you do have certain team members who won't work with Darksons. Like you have that uh, Darkson hater uh, quirk. So I find that very interesting because um, most RPGs where you're the good guy versus the bad guys, your good guys aren't allowed to be like prejudiced or, or racist or anti-Semitic. But here, here we have it happening. And it was actually a major theme in the first game. Uh, because i think rosie was a major darkson hater and she had to get over it
0: so that continues what do you think what do you think of that theme in Valkyria chronicles 4 because it is a quirk that is consistent with the original game uh huh but it just kind of lingers there it's not nece- something that you can necessarily change
1: yeah uh that is true like it's uh you can't really get rid of a uh, character's quirks can you like no, I guess, I guess you can't, uh, as I recall.
0: Um, well, oh, you can will change anyone? them. If you do uh, certain squad stories and use certain characters enough, uh, uh-huh. quirks will start to change. Oh, okay. Uh, so, for example, uh, there's one character, if you do a side story, like, she's a very worried sister. mm mm-hmm. um, But... If you complete her side story, which is a new thing, by the way, which I, I actually really like. It gives the side characters a chance to shine. It's essentially that's they good. integrated some DLC into this game. Um her trait will switch from like worried sister to like proud sister. Oh, so it'll cute. go from um, a lower stat to a to a buff. So I I it's possible that in fact the Darkson hater trait ends up changing mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. if it doesn't that's an interesting kind of like the game is almost unintentionally saying well you can't get rid of racism you're just gonna have to deal with this like racist jerk who's on your squad yeah
1: yeah i see what you mean um because i don't think rosie in the first game actually had the Darkson hater quirk but uh she learned eventually okay well what i was thinking was wrong i'm sorry about that but uh yeah if you can't get rid of that trait that is a little bit of a bummer, isn't it? Uh, I, I do know that anyone who has a and Haters uh, <laughs> quirk is not in my party, so they get to go sit off on the bench while we all have fun with our little
0: war. So this is like a personal thing for you. You're just not going to use absolutely. Them. No, pretty much. So uh, a few things that Valkyria Chronicles 4 changes from the original game. Mm-hmm. Um, th- instead of having characters who are kind of... Um, Civilians who are thrust into the military to defend their homeland. Mm-hmm. you have professional soldiers. Right. Uh, they joined up of their own accord. They're professionals, and so it has a somewhat different vibe to it it's a, It's less, oh, what were you in your previous life? What are you going to do when you get out of the military and more why did you join up? right yeah, like, it what, is. what's your motivation for being here?
1: Yeah, everyone is pretty much by the time you you start the game, everyone's more or less like a veteran of what's going on.
0: And they're like elites too. They're they're rangers. They're rangers, yeah, power rangers and everything. They go through special ranger training. Yeah. And so you have a lot of uh flashbacks to their training, their backstories, them talking about that kind of thing. So uh-huh. yeah. So uh so that's one thing that's different. Another thing and uh, from a gameplay perspective, something that is very different is um artillery. Mm-hmm. Have you been? Have have you met Riley yet? Have you been using her artillery abilities? Yes, I have. She's the grenadier, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I've I've used her a couple
1: of times, and I actually recruited. I think at least one other uh, who was actually a darkson as well. So I thought, okay, cool. You're on my team. Oh yeah, uh, was it Effie or something like that? Yeah, yeah, Effie.
0: Yeah, uh, I didn't like her traits, but. She was kind of a cute character design, so I decided to use her. Yeah,
1: she is kind of cute, and she has a very kind of, like... She's supposed to be seductive, but she sounds very bored, so I thought that was funny.
0: She has that shy, dark-haired uh, anime trope going on. Mm-hmm. Definitely. But, yeah, so I, I found myself using multiple grenadiers on a lot of missions, because they're so useful. They are. And especially later grenadiers become kind of your first priority to take out right because if your soldiers get in range of their bombardments they will die yes i already learned that i learned that the hard way they Um, they do not f around sometimes you can you can sometimes you can outrange them and take Mm -hmm. them out that way but more often than not you have to send in a lancer and right. lancers aren't going to get taken out by them. And try to knock them out with a bazooka shot, but it's a little bit of a crapshoot. Sometimes you can also outrange them uh with your own grenadier or you can snipe them. Yeah. But that can have be to be within clear line of sight. Exactly.
1: And you're usually on top of like high uh high cliffs and whatnot, so that can be kind of a dangerous gamble.
0: Yeah, they can be. Uh sometimes they're on the other side of a wall. Mm-hmm. Uh, Much later, you get access to radar, which you can uh, use a command point and scan, like, areas where you're pretty sure that, like, artillery are. That's cool. And spot them, and then you can take them out with your own artillery without having to scout them out, which is very useful. That's cool, yeah. I had somebody ask me, do scout rush tactics still work in Valkyria Chronicles 4? And my take on it is No. Because if you rush in, there is a pretty good chance that you are going to take be taken out by artillery. Yes. Or there are also heavy emplacements like Gatling guns yes. uh, in a lot of areas that you probably have to take out with your artillery first. Yeah. Um, that's
1: actually one thing I learned. I remember the scouts being a little OP in the first Valkyrie Chronicles. Oh, yeah. But you- Because of
0: their range and movement. Yeah. And, like, you could just blitz through and get to areas that you need to really fast yeah but
1: uh, that's not the case anymore there's been a couple of times where i tried where i tried to scout rush and it just did not go well for me
0: yeah for sure uh so yeah i wouldn't say that scout rushing is really a thing in this one you got to be fairly methodical uh grenadiers Mm -hmm. are very important for clearing out personnel they're not the be-all and end-all i don't think because they're not great against vehicles. There's actually... There is a grenade launcher that is good against vehicles, but it's not uber powerful. Right. And lancers are basically invulnerable to them. So you do have to use pretty much everybody. Um, even... I even kept an engineer around just to make sure that I was refilling my artillery people. And Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I actually... I do keep engineers around, even just one, because they can... They, they refill everybody, and I'm actually glad to see that the Lancer is a little more useful. I remember the Lancer's being a little bit
0: kind of useless in the first game. Uh, they're good against tanks. They have more mob- yeah. they and squeeze through areas and that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, that's true, but now they really do have a purpose. Like they, As you say, it is now actually vital to make sure your team is well balanced.
0: Yeah, my typical team layout would be something like two scouts... A shock trooper, a lancer, a grenadier, an engineer, and uh, did I mention snipers? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, you got to have the snipers. Yeah, you got to have you got to have the sniper. And then depending on the map requirements, I will increase one or the other. If like there are a ton of tanks, I might bring in right. more lancers. Uh, if I if there are a lot of personnel, I will double down on grenadiers um, and, or and scouts. Um, at a certain point, elite soldiers start showing up, mm-hmm. at which point you definitely want to, like, sometimes it can be really beneficial to just have your shock troopers, have multiple shock troopers so that you can take them out fast.
1: Yeah, yeah, I usually take, I, I try to take two shock troopers
0: around. Yeah, because scouts can. uh, can't easily punch through a lot of these elite sh- soldiers, and so no. it gets to be a little dicey. But, uh, and then some of the later missions, um, it gets pretty hard, Nadia. Yeah, so this is
1: very much a repeat of the first game where uh, you had, uh, just going by your review, you do have certain missions where you have to watch every damn step you make or, because one slip up can mean the end of it all.
0: Well, I think it's that and also you just need to have a plan, which I'm fine with. Uh, It can be a little inflexible at what that plan actually is like there's mm-hmm. usually a all right if you want to get an, if you want to get a good ranking you got to do this exactly but with valkyria chronicles 4 i made a conscious effort to relax and not be as upset when i didn't get anything less than when i got something less than an a rating i've already gotten like a c and I've been like that's good enough for me <laughs> everyone's like a alive and I was like, whatever, finish the mission. Don't care. <laughs> finish the mission. Everyone's alive. We're okay. Once bosses started showing up, I started to remember how annoying bosses could be in Valkyria Chronicles. Oh, yeah. Because I still they have will PTSD. always duck. Yes. <laughs> so they duck under everything. So what you got to do is basically bait them in and then take them out with an explosive of some sort. Yes. Because otherwise, they'll just dive into the glass no matter what. Yes. Or just duck down, like it's impossible to actually hit them. So you got to bait them in with your tank or something, and hit them with artillery. That's uh, at a certain point, these two like super soldiers, who are kind of like dolls, very anime, of course, show up, and I, <laughs> because their AI was geared toward trying to kill the tank, like the, that was the primary objective in that mission. Was the the enemy was trying to take out Claude? Uh huh. I was able to just move the tank away from everybody else and have them come in and basically flare <laughs> uselessly at it, at which point I took them out with mortar attacks. That's like, it's like you're baiting like puppy dogs or something. Come here, come here. Yeah, it was pretty sad. I don't think a crossbow is going to take out a tank, to be honest. <laughs> well, they're done, damn it, they're going to try. Oh, no, they were doing their absolute best. Uh, certain <laughs> missions start to get a lot more gimmicky as you get keep going. Uh, there's a mission where um, a enemy is able to... It, it reminded me, actually, of the Gatling Gun mission in the original Valkyria Chronicles. Right. Where you were fighting Silveria, who is much loved, of course. Um, and she is able to turn and spray Gatling Gun... Uh, if I recall correctly, she had a radius with her Gatling gun that she could take you yes. out of it. It's some, something similar to this where you have to bait her to attack a different direction so that you can sneak through and get to the area that you need to do. That requires quite a bit of planning. And then You're another right. aspect, and you haven't gotten that this far yet, Nadia, but uh, weather becomes a thing as you keep going.
1: Oh, actually, I have encountered one weather admission. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Um, very recently, uh, it was a rainy mission. Oh, oh, okay. I forget which mission that was. Uh, that was, uh, uh, without being spoilerish, I got trapped.
0: And okay. uh, the visibility oh, was bad. Oh, right. Yes. Yeah, as the game progresses, they, they really make a big deal out of environmental hazards. Um, there are instances in which things are blocked uh, from yes. falling debris... Avalanches, blizzards that will totally slow down your progress and also um it will slow down it'll it will make your AP bar drain twice as fast and Oof. it'll make it so your if your soldier goes down, they have one less turn before they disappear. Oh, ouch. And you lose them forever. Right. Because permadeath is a thing in this game if you're not careful. Right. I had some characters die. I had some characters die more than once in some missions. <laughs> <laughs> my medic was extremely busy. The, my medic and that little dog. The little dog, Ragnarok. The little sheep Uh, there's an APC in this one. and I don't think it's a new thing. I think APCs are introduced in Valkyria Chronicles too, if I recall correctly. But mm-hmm. yeah, APCs are in this one, and I actually found them pretty useless. I didn't use them. APC stands for uh
1: armored Uh, personnel carrier oh okay yeah yeah i don't remember those being the first one
0: yeah they definitely weren't in the first one they were added in a later sequel but yeah so you can basically load your soldiers up into an armored carrier and drive it around what's the point though like we can recruit you can summon soldiers from like
1: any sort of any flagpole
0: well, sometimes you just want to bust through a, a heavily guarded enemy <laughs> position True. and shoot it and gun them all down.
1: That sounds kind of fun. And then
0: take it over. Here comes, the, here comes the pain bus. The problem is often there are anti-tank emplacements that will yeah. ruin your day really fast if you try and drive really quickly into a particular area. Right. And often I just felt like it was a sitting duck. Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. Like those, uh, um, I've already encountered mines, and i f- I forgot about mines from the first game, and they are merciless.
0: Right? Yeah. Yeah, mines can be a real pain in the ass, especially when
1: you uh, you're just kind of minding your own business and you're walking along, and all of a sudden you hit one because you didn't see it, mm-hmm. and it's like your your character goes screaming and flailing, and your 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 heart's going a mile a minute because you
0: didn't see it. So VG twenty four seven wrote an interesting article where they were pointing so Raz is one of your characters so some of the characters in this game are claude yes uh claude is cautious guy has some like pain from growing up is childhood friends with riley who is your typical hot-blooded lady um you got kai who is your cool sniper gal and then there's Raz, who is, in anime terms, kind of the hot-blooded perv.
1: He's definitely the perv. He's the Ryuji of the team, except uh, probably even more pervy than Ryuji.
0: Yeah, it's extremely pervy, always kind of annoying uh, the ladies. And at one point, even grabs, uh, plays a little grab-ass with Kai. Yeah, and yeah, I got to that point. In a Japanese, in Japan, in the Japanese game, it's played off as, ah, is it Raz such a card, always... Oh, such a perv, man. So et- uh, so uh etchy, and yeah. that doesn't play especially well right now. Especially not in America. And it's like, oh god, why do you? Why do no. we have to have this? This is not great. No, it, it wasn't
1: a great scene. I know exactly which scene you're referring to, and uh, he he did get kicked, which I appreciated. But still,
0: I just don't want that kind of stuff I mean, anymore. They always I, do that, and never... they always do that where it's like the oh he's they're that he grabs the lady's ass and uh, she she turns red and then there's that scene where, like, she becomes really big and angry and then, like, slapping him or something. And it's like, it's played off for laughs, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, this, scenes like that are just tale as old of time, but I don't know. It doesn't hold up and it doesn't translate that well, unfortunately.
1: No, it doesn't, for reasons I already went to, number one. Number two, even if we're just looking at it from a a strictly a standpoint from a from writing it's just been done so many times i i yeah, don't boring, get anything it? out of it whatsoever except feeling annoyed by it it's just get another idea please
0: yeah really it, it really is anime trope 101 it's the kind of stuff that you would like them to have a more original idea i think yeah it's, it's, it, it's one of those
1: scenes where like uh when you're 12 years old and you think you're cool for watching anime because it has like quote-unquote adult stuff like that it's cliche
0: yeah i think is. you're i think you hit the nail on the head right there uh to use another cliche and
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah no absolutely and it's a little bit disappointing because um there was one bit of progressiveness that i really like i actually have a trans character on my team
0: Oh yeah, no, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it kinda of flies under the radar, doesn't it? Yeah, uh
1: I think her name's Rosetta. She's amazing. Like she's one of the best scouts in the game. She's just like really steady, level headed, and uh she's great. I love her.
0: I got her killed really early.
1: Oh, cat, why no.
0: Cat <laughs> oh, no. God, I'm terrible. I'm a bad person. Did you revive her? Was she okay? No, I just didn't get to her in time. Oh no, God. Done. She, she dun, has friends. Done. <laughs> So, talking kind of, speaking kind of overall about Valkyria Chronicles Four, I generally really like it, and I think it holds up for the most part. Uh, I, I think the tactics have been refined. I I think the story is okay. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think it's as good as Valkyrie Chronicles 1 from a story standpoint or a cast standpoint.
1: Definitely not a, sca- uh, definitely not a cast standpoint. Um, I, I might change my mind because I'm very early in the game, but we've already gone over one of the major reasons that's, like, put a, a sour taste in my mouth. Hmm. And I also think that um, the chemistry between the original cast and Valkyrie Chronicles 1 was just a lot a lot more genuine. Um, I really liked how Welkin was the young upstart and he tried his best, but he had the older veterans, um, Rosie and I can't remember the name, Largo. They were very close to each other and they weren't really, they were very against giving Welkin a chance and he really had to prove himself before they finally said, okay, we trust you. And by the time they all kind of of came together as a unit, they really did feel like a, a really close gang.
0: Yes, and Valkyria Chronicles 1 also had a swimsuit scene. (laughs) Or had a, <laughs> a, a, I totally had a, a, an extra scene where they go to the beach <sighs> where you just That's kinda right. go, eh, That's right. I'm not that averse to let's go to the beach scene, which yeah, is also a tale time beach. in anime. It is. Yeah. But uh, when it comes to the original Valkyria Chronicles, I think the thing that stood out to me was it, it was a bit darker. Yeah. Uh, uh, Valkyria Chronicles 4 certainly has its dark moments. I it think yeah. Valkyrie Chronicles Four does its does a good job showing the horrors of war. You see people being wounded and uh, how thing how bad things can get. But I mean, Valkyrie Chronicles One had a concentration camp, you know. So
1: yeah, it's uh, that's pretty much as dark as it gets. Although Valkyrie Chronicles Four, I'm kind of slowly making my way up to the the frozen front, as it were, and I'm sure things
0: aren't going to get jolly there. Yeah, things aren't particularly jolly though. I I got a I have a piece of advice. Uh huh. Don't make your ladies wear uniforms that are like skirts.
1: <laughs> oh, maybe that's they'll right, do Riley. Better
0: in winter warfare. Like, yeah, I, yeah, maybe those tights are from Uniqlo, and they're like the ultimate thermal tights. I don't know.
1: I have to admit, Uniqlo is pretty cool. There's one. There's one in Toronto that uh, is very close to me, and I've like even me. I don't care about clothes. I'm like, oh man, Uniqlo's cool.
0: Yeah. So uh, when it comes to the the actual cast, eh? So I mean. They they all fall into pretty well worn anime cliches and they have arcs, but they're they're slightly boring. I mean, it's mm-hmm. like Raz shouldn't be so hot headed. Well, no shit. Stop being such a hothead, Raz. You're getting everybody you're gonna get everybody killed. Stuff like that. So uh, yeah, uh, the story's fine. Um, it's pretty long actually. Uh, there's this game's a good solid thirty hours, mm-hmm. uh, which is pretty long for a tactics game. It gets pretty intense. Uh, as time goes on, it can last you upwards towards of like sixty hours if you do everything That's right. Because you
1: have the uh, the supplementary missions as well,
0: yeah, and the skirmishes and all that. Right, I'm sure there are people out there who are going to be completionists. I think more than ever, what I really want is for them to find something other to to do other than the second year open war. Yeah. Um, what if they went to, back to like the first year open war? Have they ever done that? I think that. What they're facing is essentially in so allow me to compare this to Gundam. In uh, Gundam they have something called the One Year War, which is right. the foundational conflict of the series. Xeon versus Federation. And the story has gone and show multiple angles of the of the first or the one year war many times. But eventually there was a sequel. And that sequel is called Zeta Gundam. And in Zeta Gundam It basically turned the tables and it united enemies and friends into one force that was rebelling against Earth because Earth had been taken over by a totalitarian organization called the Titans. Mm -hmm. And that was a great kind of twist on the original show. And it allowed the characters to all grow and go Uh in different directions. It really expanded upon the lore in interesting ways. Sadly, Gundam got went back to the old formula of oh, well, the Zeon's back and you gotta fight them now or something. <laughs> More wars are going on, but in a in that short period of time, the the concept for the sequel is really good. And mm. I would like Valkyria Chronicles. If a Valkyria Chronicles Five is a thing, and I hope it is because right. I think it plays really well on the Switch. It does. I would like them to do that. Mm, that sounds good. Thank you, Nadia. Thank you for endorsing my idea. <laughs> You're very welcome. You should pass it off to Sega. Yeah, but I, I gave it a 4 out of 5. I think it's a good game. I think it's going to fall slightly under the radar this year. But I think it's one of the most beautiful games on the Nintendo Switch, which was the platform that I played it on. I think it holds up extremely well in handheld mode. It does. Uh, the slowness of upgrading your characters notwithstanding, that is kind of a pain in the butt. Like uh, leveling them up, yeah. Like leveling them up, uh, take training oh, yeah. them at headquarters, that kind of thing. Because oh yeah, every time you upgrade your gun, you have to have a little cutscene where they're like going, "We upgraded your gun." Like I don't need that. <laughs> I, yes, I've noticed that already. Or when you're training them, Shut you have up, to Miles. fill each bar individually and then wait for it to fill up. Yep, and then wait for the little cutscene where they're like it. You you improved your character. I'm like I know I improved my character. Thank you. They actually tell you you leveled up, so to speak. Of like, oh, you clever little bastards. And at a certain point, like, usually the presentation in this game is great. Like the scrapbook is really cool. Not yeah, as good as scrapbook. the original Valkyria Chronicles because in the original Valkyria Chronicles, uh, the journalist was actually a part of an integrated part of the cast, and here That's it just right. feels yes. vestigial. Yes. Which is a little disappointing, but the scrapbook is still there, and that's cool. I love the scrapbook. Yeah. Uh, but this is an instance where I'm like, can you just dial back the <laughs> Can you just dial back the presentation by about ten percent? We got a war on, people. We don't have time for this shit. Anyway, uh, any final thoughts on Valkyria Chronicles Four, Nadia? Oh, so far I'm really enjoying it, and I
1: plan to uh, continue playing it. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, that little bit with the the scene that we talked about is, is very eye-rolling, but uh, don't let that deter you from playing the game. It's pretty great.
0: Yeah, uh, no, absolutely. Don't let it deter you at all from playing this game. And we got to support this game, people. We, we want Valkyria Chronicles to continue so I can get Valkyria Chronicles Zeta. Do we? <laughs> we don't want another Valkyria Chronicles Revolution. Do you want another Valkyria Chronicles Revolution? No, you don't. To to paraphrase Abe Simpson, we've got to support this thing or it might not make it. <laughs> the, of course, the Super Abe Bowl. Abe Simpson was talking about the Super yes. Bowl in this instance, which is a little different. But all right, Nadia, let's move on to my interview with Chris Avalone right after this. Okay, I am here with someone who probably doesn't need any introduction he has worked on some of the best rpgs ever made including fallout 2 and uh, correct me if i'm wrong you worked on planescape torment right
2: yes i was a lead designer of that project and it brings back many strange memories
0: yes chris Avalone, please welcome him to the show and chris you are here to talk about a new project that you are working on right now pathfinder kingmaker in fact you're very busy these days
2: I am very busy, and I'm very happy to be busy, and the reason for that, Kat, is that I love to write, and there are so many opportunities to write, so I'm I'm taking advantage of as many of them as I can.
0: (laughs) Clearly, the last time we chatted, you were working on Divinity Original Sin 2 for Larian, which ultimately went extremely well, but tell me a little bit about how you became involved with Pathfinder Kingmaker and aside from the fact that they're willing to you know pay your wage and get you on the project uh, like what drew you to the project
2: well i think the big thing was that there actually hadn't been a pathfinder single player rpg i mean there there's countless others and other uh, similar franchises but it really kind of confused me that there wasn't one for pathfinder so an owlcat They're the studio that's developing um, uh, uh, Pathfinder Kingmaker, they reached out to me, and they're like, hey, well, we would love it if you'd be willing to come on board and do some writing for us. And I'm like, I would love to do that, because I have not really had the chance to work on a Pathfinder game. And um, we used to play uh, Pathfinder games uh, uh, back at Obsidian during lunch hour, and uh, I I remember them quite fondly. So the idea of being able to work on a, a computerized version of that was very intriguing.
0: You're an avid tabletop role player and Pathfinder has an interesting history, I should say. Um it, it's kind of a split off point between Dungeons and Dragons because D&D was moving into its 4th edition and uh, Pathfinder kind of sticks around closer to the 3.5 if, if I'm not mistaken.
2: Oh, you're absolutely correct.
0: Yeah. So, what what about Pathfinder? Like did the the tabletop game really stood out to you aside from the rule sets?
2: Well, I thought there were a lot of mechanic changes they made to sort of make the, um, I think the game, the gameplay changes they made actually were, were quite insightful in terms of what tabletop players wanted. Uh, I found certain classes that would sometimes be kind of boring or useless to be a lot more interesting in Pathfinder, uh, like mostly the priest class where, you know, if you were a cleric before, you're basically unless you role play really well, you're going to be the most boring person in the world healing everyone's wounds. But in Pathfinder, I felt like it had more flexibility. Also, um, I really, this might be kind of odd to say the, uh, the way they presented their world. Um, I'm kind of a Wayne Reynolds nut, but, um, the way they presented their world with the Iconics and uh, the, the Iconics are like, hey, here's what a sample character of the Barbarian would be like in Pathfinder. I always thought those presentations were really interesting. And the stories for those uh, characters did not go in ways I expected. And I found that was true in a lot of the modules that I'd read and played through as well. So um, that was part of the draw for it.
0: So, so Pathfinder Kingmaker, it. it- really is kind of like catnip to me because the idea is you're you're taking control of your own kingdom you, your party members are your the people who are working together on this thing and that immediately is so interesting to me because I love that notion of building my own kind of kingdom my own world but this is not a new concept. I've seen it done in many other RPGs, most recently in ninokuni 2. And uh, the thing that's always stood out to me is that invariably I don't get the amount of control that I want or it doesn't feel like it does enough to really make me feel invested in my kingdom. The, the, the systems aren't robust enough. And I'm wondering... How is Pathfinder Kingmaker kind of different? And as the narrative designer, how are you really making it so that the story really ties you to the development of your kingdom?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, I'm one of uh, several narrative designers. One of the, uh, the actual lead uh, narrative designer is uh, Alexander um, Kosmolov, and he's going to kill me for mispronouncing his name. Cause I only ever write it. Um, The, so what I like about it is, so I, I like the game mechanics for uh, what, what structure you can build and, and what nations you can cause to ally with you in with you Kingmaker. But what I think probably may be more interesting if you're more of the narrative side of things is there's a lot of personal moments in being a ruler, uh, both in the companions that you may have to assign to certain roles, like you can't do everything. So sometimes you might need to rely on someone to, I think this would be the best person to take care of this particular situation. But in order to make that judgment, you actually have to know enough about that character to see if they'd actually be good in that role. And sometimes it's a little bit subtle because you really have to dig into some of the dialogue to see whatever personal like, conflicts they've had in the past, whatever challenges they've tried to meet and failed, even though they might seem like really good people or you know especially bad people if you need a bad person. Um, However, uh what really struck me was there's a there's a number of throne room moments where like you have to basically give the the justice of the king or the the justice of the queen. The characters you've met before will come to you in the context of, you know, so-and-so isn't paying their taxes, so-and-so wants to doesn't respect the territorial lines between these two nations. And even though you might understand where that character is coming from because you may have been involved in his quest or her quest, you actually it becomes more of a personal matter where you're like, well. What's better for the kingdom in this case? Or, you know, do I care about the kingdom's opinion in this case? And, you know, is it more important to me to be a more of an individualistic ruler? And I think those personal moments, I think, uh, stand out a lot to me because when they occurred, they were pretty hard choices. And in some cases, I I these were NPCs I'd helped. And suddenly they were coming to me, but they distrusted me because of, my level in the kingdom now they're like okay well the king the king's not going to see things my way even though as a you know as an adventurer he helped me out but you know as a ruler i never really trusted royalty etc cetera, etc cetera. and and those made for pretty hard choices
0: and one of the things that i saw was it seems as if if you're not paying attention somebody can develop a potion that will dramatically improve your country's military but also turn your soldiers into zombies and I thought, does this person work for the Department of Defense? I mean, what's, do they work for the CIA? Like, what's going on? It doesn't sound, this sounds kind of awful.
2: Yeah, it's a a super soldier dilemma where you're like, well, um, this potion will, you know, help you help your military, but will it really? (laughs) And I, 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 I but that's a question, you know, you you might have to ask yourself, especially if you're being besieged by multiple nations. You're like, I really need to make a strong show of force so that there's not more lives lost, but I, The idea of undermining the will of my army with this horrible alchemical formula is not something that I would prefer to do. But that's a lot easier for lawful evil characters where they're like, hey, you know, that's what you signed up for on the contract. Uh, But again, that's another choice.
0: What kind of themes do you want to explore with this? And uh, I don't want to get political, but it seems like a really interesting time to be exploring the concept of being a leader of a nation.
2: It is so. Um, I have a game philosophy where I never bring any sort of current events or real world politics into games and developing. Uh, it's not that I don't have opinions about those things, but I save that for the voting booth. The, uh, however, um, so so what I try and do is whenever I'm writing a character or uh, working on a storyline for a game, usually I just try and take elements from the actual game world that I think that people would have questions about. And strangely enough, even though it's the title is Kingmaker. It's actually uh, the the theme that we decided upon was. Ex- it's kind of hard to explain. When you attempt to inflict ill will on another as a form of punishment, in this case, like if you wish to bestow a curse on someone, that is something where if you're focusing a lot of malicious ill will to it, that it ties you to that person and also sort of leaves you vulnerable to the same sort of judgment. But you've put yourself in that position. And um, that's one of the themes that we try not to explore in multiple ways throughout the game, uh, that maybe uh, that's not the best way <laughs> uh, to deal with a situation that you perceive, because it may actually come back to to bite you and hurt you. Um, but then again, maybe your punishment was over-exacting for what you perceived as a slight and and that's one that's one theme we, that we explore throughout the game. Um, yeah, so th- that's that's sort of our core thing.
0: When I think back to,
2: did you ever play Fable Three? I did not play Fable Three. I played Fable Two.
0: Fable Three always bummed me out because at the end you get to take control of your kingdom. The second half of the game is taking control of your kingdom, and one of the overarching themes of Fable Three is that essentially you have to make hard decisions. Um, you could i don't spend some spend your budget to make the people happier but you're not buffing up the military and oh by the way you are aware that a invasion of like demons or something are coming to destroy you and so everything so you either have to be a good benevolent king who or queen who will see the ruin of their country or they have to be a tyrant who will kind of ruin the country themselves and my solution was to wait for the real estate to give me enough money so that I could do both. And that was... <laughs> I, I kind of broke the game in that respect.
2: Uh, is, but that, that basically meant that you sort of, like, increased the scope of your tax collection?
0: Yeah, no, it was pretty amazing. Well, the reason that it didn't work was that advancing the timeline was... i You advanced the timeline by going into the throne room, but money was collected in real time. So...
2: Oh, oh well, that... Well, that sounds like a smart solution. <laughs> You're like, well, here's the physics of this world, and I'm supposedly being presented with a dilemma, but I'm in a Kobayashi Maruda <laughs> situation. <laughs> because I know the game mechanics. The best part is I don't have to hack the program. The game mechanics have already given me this opportunity. I think you should be rewarded for that.
0: I think the upshot of all this is... There can be some serious crypt- uh, systems creep into games like these, uh, where one system will ultimately end up conflicting with another, and then completely undermine the point that you're trying to make. And uh, I'm wondering how, how. What are your thoughts on that in the the context of Pathfinder?
2: Um, not the franchise as a whole, but in the game. The game. Uh, yeah. I, I think we've. I think yeah. we've sidestepped that problem. Actually, I think narratively, it's uh, impossible to ignore that issue.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Another thing is, so it's it's still an RPG. Like, it's a party-based RPG where you're going out into the world. Um, And it feels like it's really hard to contain the scope of the storytelling in the game itself when you're trying to have these two really disparate elements. And I'm wondering how you manage that.
2: Um, so first off, was recognizing that not ever when, when someone's when a player is purchasing a game like this, uh, their primary thrust is probably going to be the the RPG dungeon crawling exploration aspect, which is very very key to Pathfinder. And even in the Kingmaker pen and paper module, they recognize the kingdom building may not be something that everybody wants to do. So they provide some pretty simple rules, to so sort of like fire and forget for those. And when doing the actual game, uh, we tried to respect the fact that some players may not want to be a ruler of a kingdom. Um, and if so, there are ways where it didn't consume much of your time or you could minimize that aspect of, of the game because we recognize ex- player expectation was going to be, I actually probably do just want to gather my party forth and you know explore a lot of dungeons and figure out the root, pro- root cause of all these problems are and solve them. And that that's something we were like, as long as you commit to that early in design, it's actually not too much of a problem to plan for. I seem to recall that
0: there was a, a quote from you or something at Obsidian along the lines of, have you talked to your NPC to get today or something to that effect? <laughs> As in, you put a premium on players interacting with NPCs and finding interesting solutions, interesting nonviolent solutions to problems. And I'm wondering, is that kind of fair to say? And does that, how does that manifest in Pathfinder Kingmaker?
2: Okay, so uh, I probably wouldn't have said the have you talked to your NPC today because one thing that um, is also equally respectful is even though I'm a narrative designer and this is shitting myself in the foot, there are players that do not want to play the game that way. They want to have a good experience if they never talk to anybody or they skip the dialogue, and I actually respect that. Um, However, if you do happen to engage in conversations with characters, um, even as far back as Fallout 1 and Fallout 2, uh, you are going to be rewarded most likely for engaging in that situation uh, in some fashion. You are going to learn something that other characters don't. You might get a perk or a you know, an ability or an item that other people might not have, but that represents the fact that you chose to engage with that system uh, on some level and to, to get that reward. And I'm okay with that. Um, one thing, I the quote that I probably said was, uh, I really do like, pacifist approaches through games and pacifist might be the wrong way to put it but i always admired um uh constantine and the comic books and you know some of the movie elements and some of the tv series a little bit but uh the fact that he always knew enough about a situation to diffuse it without violence even though um it may not end up well for everybody else. And I guess the the point from that I'm trying to say is that if you know the if you know the characters in the world, you know, what motivates them, you make an effort to understand what they're about. There are nonviolent ways to solve that either in a good way or a or in a evil manipulative way to get something that you desire. And I'm, I'm okay with that because that feels like a different way to approach a solution. And also I'm kind of biased towards speech characters, so I, I always like to include that in the games. Although, um, unfortunately, even at Obsidian towards the end, they were uh, more of the violence path or combat path was more of the, the thrust for games. Like, hey, here's our here's our core pillar, and I'm like, oh, we're gonna lose the speech path. No, but you know, then again, I'm a writer and I'm biased.
0: More speech paths, please. More speech paths.
2: Oh, I love them. Oh my god, I love them so much. Oh, and Constantine did it so well. Oh. <laughs>
0: You've mentioned uh, the the classic RPG alignment system, and I'm wondering which what what do you trend toward? Do you trend toward kind of a lawful good, or are you more chaotic evil kind of guy?
2: Uh, I'm definitely lawful good. Oh, um, occasionally chaotic good because chaotic is usually about respecting individual rights, um, and lawful good might be a little bit too strict. But the reason I do that, I worry sometimes because of uh, much older RPGs sort of conditioned me that good must always be the right path. But then again, I play games today with the understanding they've tried to balance both, but yet I can't get away from trying to be a good guy. So that gives me faith in my own human nature.
0: I always, I I think we all have a little bit of always chaotic evil in our hearts.
2: <laughs> oh, really, Kat? <laughs>
0: Well, we uh, we we placed the U.S. gamer staff on the D and D alignment system recently, and I, I believe we came to the conclusion that, I, in fact, I was lawful evil.
2: <laughs> did you go to law school?
0: <laughs> no, but um, I, I really want to know what my employees are thinking. Of me, I, I think that if you go into management, you just did not necessarily become lawful evil.
2: That could be, you know. But one thing I will say is that uh, it, it sounds like you the categorization there happened in terms of your real-life personalities and how people saw it versus how people want to be in games, which I think ends up being two different things. And that, that gives me, also gives me faith in, faith in human nature sometimes, where I'm like, everyone really wants to be good. they may not succeed at it every day, but games are kind of proof that, you know, that it does seem to skew to that metric. I because a lot of the, the RPGs that uh, I have seen metrics for people tend to, to go down that good path. Um, they don't make as much wide selection in character classes, but alignment wise, most people want to do the, do the right thing, which I think is encouraging.
0: Yeah. I think people want to do that because I, I, if you're being evil in a way, it feels like you're breaking the game because when you are being evil, you're in, You are intentionally breaking things. You are intentionally breaking relationships. You are intentionally breaking the world. And that's hard, I think.
2: Uh, I'd agree with that. Also, um, I've had a problem with uh, the depiction of evil characters in games, and it sounds so weird to advocate, but usually uh, what I would see for evil options is, hey, if you're evil, that means you can kill everybody, or you can extort more money from people. And those are really boring options versus, you know, I'm going to be Palpatine and reconfigure the Republic, which is falling apart, to be a more efficient, streamlined organization to wipe out crime. I'm like, okay, well, that. That's a different kind of evil, where it might cause me to pause because I know the Star Wars Republic at the time really wasn't functioning very well. <laughs> um, so I mean, there there are parts like that where I'm like, I think it, it depends on the amount of uh, sort of range of consequences you give to evil characters and the range of range of choices as well. And I think some games tend to dismiss the negative, like they're like, well, we, well, we allow you to role play evil, but not not like in a wide range of evil. It's always these limited aspects, which to me, have always felt really boring.
0: I think binary decisions is where something can kind of fall off. I, and one of my yep. favorite decisions ever was undeniably evil. Like I did an evil thing in Fallout four, but I, what I did in uh, the far Harbor DLC was I caused the, the nuclear, uh, worshiping cult to nuke themselves <laughs> because I hated those guys. How, how do you sleep at night? How do you sleep at night? Well, I looked at it. I, I looked at the situation. You had some people who were living in a town. You had the nuclear worshipping cults who were undeniably dangerous. And then you had the robots who were uh, playing all, both ends against the middle. And so I had the townspeople. I exposed the the robots because I wanted the townspeople to meet out their own justice. And I had the... The, the, the cult nuked themselves because I realized that there was, even if I had a peaceful solution, that was not going to be peace. They they were going, this nuclear cult was dangerous and they were eventually going to overrun the island. And so I did what I had to do, which it's, that's an evil thing, right? Evil people go, Oh, I did what I had to do. Uh, people yeah, wouldn't understand, I but I did what I had to do.
2: But you know, as I'm hearing it, I hear the steps and logic that you made to get there, and maybe that's that may seem evil, but there were really rational reasons for why you did what you did, and I think that makes for interesting choices. We were like, you know what, this might be best for everybody, and I hate to say it because people looking from the outside might judge me.
0: If you talk to legitimately evil people, though, they will sit you down and they will lay it out point by point, explaining to you exactly why they did a thing. Um, you've been in this business a long time, Chris you've uh, worked on many games and, and i'm curious what do you think of the landscape of kind of games writing as it appears uh, as it applies to rpgs in particular right now do you think they're doing enough to give you a real sense of choice or do you th- uh, or are you finding that it's kind of scaled back a little bit too much
2: i feel like it's scaled back too much especially the more expensive the title is to make um, I think that it's really hard to argue the logistics and budget of having significant consequences uh, when you have a game that's just so expensive to make and requires uh, a ton of testing. Um, so I, I, one thing that used to bother me, and I'll go on record as saying this kind of always bothered me about Mass Effect and it bothered me about um, the nice little public morality system, is that It felt like, in particular, in those instances, it was a step back from D&D because it it is a a binary morality system that's going on there within a certain range. And that always bothered me because I'm like, well, I think that both good and evil and even neutrality are nuanced in their way, and everyone is like that. So you're actually limiting role-playing choices by cutting off content if people don't choose those those extreme polar opposites when they're going through a game, and, and worse, it like ruins role playing. Where like people are like, "Well, um, you know, I I want all the renegade options, or I want all the dark side options, so I'm just gonna spam those now." I don't mind it as much if it's not tied into system mechanics and I also don't mind it as much as long as there's a variety of dark side and light side options, for example, where you actually stop for a second and you're like, well, wait a minute, what do I really want to accomplish here by, you know, falling to the dark side, if that is even even an objective. Um, so that's okay. Um, I really think Witcher 3 kind of went above and beyond, like, I, even though the dialogue options are far more limited than I'm used to. I don't ever feel like I'm not role playing because they do present me with very challenging situations where there's there's no clear right or wrong, so I have to end up asking myself like based on limited information that I have, what feels like the right decision here to me, and I do give them kudos for that. Even though I don't think The Witcher Three always plays fair with its information, I still like that mechanic and it does keep me motivated to keep playing the game.
0: I always found the thing I've always found interesting about Witcher Three was that there would be a domino effect depending on the decisions that you made. Or the decisions that you don't make, right? Because you could just opt to do nothing. You you could opt to completely ignore a side quest, and then the game will just play out in some other fashion as, if you never step in and intervene.
2: Yeah, I don't, I don't ever feel like I got a clear, or maybe it was just me, Like I didn't feel like I got, I got a clear presentation of what was truly a timed, or this quest is now going to cut off event. And that, as a role player, kind of bothered me a bit, but then I just learned to roll with it. But I, some some more telegraphing of that would have been welcome, but then again, hey, I guess that's life. So. The,
0: the thing with Mass Effect was, I uh, we recently I I recently did a panel about Mass Effect actually at PAX and yeah, yep, right. and I, I talked a little bit about how I was role playing as a renegade, uh, a pr- extremely pro human, uh, very racist uh, renegade, <laughs> and so I made all of my decisions through that lens, but. In this kind of role-playing scenario, my character, as they travel with these alien companions, steadily get better and trend more toward Paragon. And the thing that always disappointed me was that there wasn't enough scope within the systems in uh, throughout the entire trilogy to be able to reflect that journey. It was always way more binary than I wanted.
2: Kat, do you when you say systems, do you mean like the uh, the scope of narrative reactivity, or actually in the? Game I mean games? both,
0: actually, because something something to the effect of, um, if you trend, if you try to kind of shift away back toward the other side, the game would still punish you for going uh, over to Renegade, effectively, and uh, there were dialogue choices that were Renegade or Paragon specific. And you would sort of be stuck with that um, as you got later into the series.
2: Yeah, that's how I felt about uh, Knights of the Republic uh, 1, even though I loved it to death. Uh, and it was actually a challenge we were doing the second game where the the discussion we'd have is we had designers that wanted to cut off the, pair, the sort of light side Paragon options in the second game. And I'm, I said no because I'm like, well, look, um, you have to understand, like, core, core to the Star Wars franchise, and it might have been the franchise arguing it for me, uh, Darth Vader is able to make a complete 180 by the end of the series. And we have to allow for that as well. Like, now we can argue the mechanics of how that occurs, but it's part of the Star Wars. Sorry. Sorry. About that. Oh, it's that Alexa. Shut up. Sorry. Sorry, Alexa. Oh, my God. I feel bad. I feel bad now. <laughs> um... But Darth Vader is able to have that journey of redemption, and that's core to the to the franchise. Like you don't want to mess with that, especially in the narrative and dialogue systems, because like you know a good chunk of that happens like like during the movies. So that helped push for that, but it was still a a longer discussion than I think it needed to be.
0: You've worked on many are you're working on a lot of games at this point you're working on a lot of different narrative projects um are there any kind of things that you're kind of exploring uh new approaches to handling narrative or quest design since i mean you've designed so many quests at this point you've written so many stories obviously as a writer you want to try something new
2: yeah um freelancing has really allowed me to explore other genres and how they communicate story and quest and those genres like um when I was working in Prey, like the amount of writing actually wasn't nearly on the same level as it would be required for an RPG. But at the same time, you do have that limiter where you're like, well, I don't want to write too much. Like I want to keep within this this narrow narrow frame of nodes. How do I communicate the story like through VO or visuals uh, to to get those points across? And you know, sometimes it would even be uh, interesting to do it without even any characters present. And Elements like that are fun to explore, uh, you know, doing it for like RTSs, like even doing story elements. Uh, it's like when I worked on um, Into the Breach, which was done by the, uh, the makers of FTL, uh, we had to communicate the lore and the story that was going on in that game with the understanding that, you know, these pilots that are going through the adventure, like they're going to die a lot and you're probably not going to hear everything they have to say. But in a future timeline, you might hear different aspects of it, but you won't you won't get the whole story at once. You won't get all the lore at once. And getting challenges like that uh, really shake me out of the sort of RPG rut I think I was starting to get into where I'm like, oh, well, you know, I've done this, this conversation system before. I've done this kind of structure before. I know what to do here. And sometimes not knowing exactly what to do and making some mistakes and finding out new ways of implementing narrative, I think, ends up being better for the craft and end up being better for the player because so many other genres like they figured out ways to tell story that RPGs don't always do. And sometimes RPGs can rely on too much text or too much oh, here's you know, the exposition dump, when in fact other genres have solved that problem in many other ways that I think RPGs would be wired.
0: Uh, can you to. give me some examples? I'd be really interested to hear.
2: Yeah, uh, so uh, the crew quarters in Prey um, is one level you get to uh, probably about halfway through the game a little over halfway through the game. And we had to communicate a romantic relationship that had fallen apart between two characters. And a lot of that was done partly through audio logs um, but then also there were, there were story elements being communicated through people's passwords through, oh, here's a crumpled up piece of paper you find in the trash. Like, oh, I found you know, a series of apology notes that are in the trash that I'm only going to find if I look into the, the trash can. But the context of finding it in that situation tells me a lot about what that character was going through. And that's something you can't always get in, say, like a, uh, you know, a top-down RPG or something you may not get, you know, if you're playing Fallout 2 or Night of the Republic. There are just mechanisms that exist in those other genres where it suddenly puts a new spin on how you can tell us. Yeah, no, that
0: is really interesting. Uh, I'd be curious. Uh, one thing I'm curious to know, are, are there any quests that you've written recently that you are especially proud of because you feel like you've really kind of broken out of the box because I I can, when you say you've fallen into the rut of RPG writing, I can, I can understand what you mean because when you're writing quests, when you're writing story beats, I I imagine that you get so used to, well, so well, I've done this quest before and like, I just, I understand, I have a a innate understanding of how a, a successful quest should play out. And I end up falling into a template without even really realizing it.
2: Yeah, uh, so my story is going to be oh, a no. failure one. Um, so, yeah, it. So, towards the end of the, the the huge quest writing phase, I was going through is uh, I was working on um, uh, Fallout New Vegas DLC called Dead Money, which had a whole host of problems associated with it. But one thing that the DLC was originally intended to explore was that you purposely had to avoid the objectives that were showing up to you in the quests quest log because they were being given by someone you didn't trust. And so whenever he asked you to do something, the the goal was you would step away from it. And despite what's being told to you to do, examine why you're doing it. See if you should do it and try and figure out a way to outmaneuver that quest. So it gives you what you want. Seemingly gives him his objective, but it's actually preparing him for a failure down the road. And I thought that would be really interesting where you have to question your own quest log rather than just jumping through the hoops. Now that was shot down pretty fast. Uh, but I think that would have been something that I think would have been interesting to explore, even though I probably would have reduced the Metacritic (laughs) score by another 10%
0: (laughs) and God knows Fallout new Vegas didn't need to to deal anymore with Metacritic stuff. Um, (laughs) speaking of fallout, uh, it is the 20th anniversary of fallout two, uh, the end oh of the month. God. I we are in the process of doing a uh, top twenty-five RPG countdown. Uh, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that one of the two Fallout games is on that list. Um, Fallout Two obviously uh, has been so influential over the years. Um, looking back on it, like how do you, I mean, how do you feel looking back on it after twenty years?
2: Uh, slightly disappointed. Um, I am happy and proud of uh, folks that I worked with. I'm very happy and proud that like when you go to a lot of the areas in Fallout 2, there are many ways to solve things in that environment or do things in that environment that are really interesting. Um, and I think a lot of care and effort went into it. What disappoints me is I thought there was a really beautiful purity about the vision in Fallout 1 from an aesthetic sense. That I thought was really hurt in Fallout 2. Like I thought some areas in Fallout 2 were just plain ridiculous. Also, the the main antagonist in Fallout 2, I thought felt sort of fell really flat, and um, I didn't care for the presentation of the sort of like the mouthpieces for the main enemy faction in Fallout 2. I thought. Uh, One was really strong but systematically weak, and the other one was systematically, I guess, strong but in the wrong ways and was a terrible character. So I felt like there could have been a more elegant way to solve that problem that there wasn't anyone proposing that solution or anyone who wanted to do that solution. And um, I think the rushed nature of that title also hurt it too. So there's some disappointments there and stuff that I'm proud of. I am actually still surprised that people enjoyed fallout 2 and I'm like, wow, you really liked it. Oh, that, that certainly wasn't the case for the fan reaction at the time. Like, fans were super mad when it came out. We got so much crap for it. And I, th- I think, it. but then
0: said. fallout three came out and people kind of maybe looked back on the first two fallout games uh, fairly fondly. I, s- I suppose because especially fallout two was pretty ambitious in the way that it, it told its story. Um, I hear I hear regrets from you, and I, I think that is a natural thing uh, when you're a writer. But when you say you're proud of some stuff that you did on Fallout 2, uh, what are you proud of?
2: Um, so, when doing area design for Vault City, for example, um, I got a really terrible template uh, to to work from. Like there were there were some key story elements to hit, but the area had been through two designers that did not seem to embrace fully what Fallout was. So I got um, this collection of scripts uh, and and you know um, uh, quest scripting that I'm like, wow, this is not showing like for example any dialogue reactivity. There's no real range in how you solve these quests because a, a core part of Fallout to me was aside from like what your karma is and what faction allegiance you may have. <clears throat> the fact that you could solve quests, as a thief character, you know, or a speech character or a combat character. In some of those quests, there just wasn't any sense of that even being attempted. And that's what I sort of started feeling a little bit worried about. Um, However, what I'm proud of is I'm like, well, look, this is going to require some extra time, but I do want to go through these Vault City quests and make sure they do have that interesting range. I'm really worried that when players get here, they're going to find it kind of flat and not terribly interesting and sort of just like a speed bump on the road for what the the main plot is and I didn't want it to feel that way at all. So um, I try to add a lot more variations in the quest, a lot of different kinds of quests uh, for both good and evil characters and actually it's uh, it was one of my favorite areas in, in Fallout too. Like I'm really proud of what happened there. I have no idea how the fans felt about it but I, I really enjoyed it. So
0: now you're looking at Pathfinder Kingmaker one of your handful of projects. Um, what what are you really hoping to accomplish uh, with this game, ultimately, in
2: a narrative sense? Uh, so there's a few things. Uh, so first off, uh, I would really like, and this is sort of stepping back from the game itself. I would like the Pathfinder franchise to be continued to be expressed in RPGs. I mean, computer RPGs, um, pen and paper. They've already they've already got that covered. But I think. Th- I think a Pathfinder RPG using the Galarian world has been too long delayed. (laughs) So anything I can do from a design aspect to make players really enjoy that game, uh, that's been, a—that's that's, that's been a sort of high level goal. The other thing is, uh, I came on the project, um, with a challenge where it was like, hey, wait a minute, uh, Kingmaker is actually based on this pen and paper module, a like Troika's Temple of Elemental evil, evil Evil was. But with that in mind, like it's an interesting challenge to take that pen and paper uh, adventure path and turn it into a computer game. But well, what can you do to, one, improve upon it, and two, are there any themes you can sort of draw out about it that you think would make the pen and paper Version become stronger by comparison, and that's where I started focusing on the the curse aspect and the idea of how much punishment is too not is too much versus vindictive, and is there a weakness being given to both people in a situation like that? And that was an interesting theme to explore, as well as what do we see that things that we can improve with the computer game about that adventure path that either fans may have mentioned or. We think would be fun to explore because a lot of the characters in the in the pen and paper adventure path, they might have like one or two sentences or a paragraph, but then we have an opportunity to actually create the dialogues for them, like you know, get them a place to live, like add more personalization to them. And a fun aspect of that, I'm sorry, I'm going to go on too long about this, but the um, what really also drew me to it was the Owlcat Studio guys they'd already been playing that adventure path across like, you know, at least three different campaigns before they even had an opportunity to do a computer game in that world. So they brought a lot of their personal uh, tabletop experiences to, Hey, here's how we developed the character in the, and that's one campaign. And now we can flush them out the computer game and seeing that personal touch really brought back uh, Baldur's gate memories because the Baldur's gate companions and some of the Baldur's gate NPCs, they actually sort of, Gained life through BioWare tabletop sessions. So being able to. Go back I believe to that
0: you kind of famously wrote the Bible for Fallout and you had a large hand in the development of that universe. Do you have the itch to kind of go back and create something brand new for yourself at any point?
2: Yeah. Um, actually, my wife asked me that question. She's like, you know, I know I know you're in a learning phase right now and you like the tool sets, you like working with various teams and exploring a franchise or, or working with someone that you've always wanted to work with. And you have those opportunities now, but it might be good if you just step back <laughs> and go, what would, once you've learned all that you want to learn, like, what's the next step? And then I sort of got paralyzed. I'm like, you know, actually, I've had ideas over the years, but I don't know if there's anything that's really just grabbed me yet. I just feel like um, the first stage is that repair all the things that are wrong in my writing and go, okay, well, I'm not doing this well. I'm not doing that well. I could use a wider range in this. Oh, this tool set's a better way to do this. It's good that I know that now. I think there's going to be a tipping point where once I've amassed enough of that information, that something is just going to grab me and I probably won't have much choice about it. I'll be like, oh, okay, well, that's what I'm going to do because everything has been pointing me towards this.
0: I have a challenge for you. I am ready. Make the Starship RPG that I've always wanted but I've never received.
2: What are the three big things that you think a Starship RPG is missing?
0: Being in charge of the ship, being able to recruit a crew, being able to go on away missions, being able to scramble the starfighters and have like good combat. I have seen variants of this on uh, like Steam and that kind of thing, but often they, yeah, they, they don't really scratch that particular itch. They don't have enough role playing, they go too far into <laughs> strategy. Uh, you don't interact with your crew enough. Like Mass Effect goes extreme toward. The role playing and some others go extreme toward the systems, and I want something that manages to meet it halfway.
2: Interesting. Okay. Um, Yeah, that's an interesting challenge, just because, like, uh, you know, games aside, like, uh, I'm trying to think of a like a sci-fi TV show that accomplishes that, and the, the challenge there is, it feels like a lot of the crew is static like in Battlestar Galactica or Firefly, you're always going to have those same set of companions. And then and they could be great personalities, but largely they're going to be static. And then, um, But then you have the wild nature of Star Trek, where it's like, well, we're going to go just about perhaps too much of anywhere and do too much of anything, where I worry that sort of dilutes a more concrete storyline. But interesting. All right. Well, I will give it some thought, cat, and uh, I will see if I can rise to the challenge. Godspeed,
0: <laughs> Chris Avalone pathfinder kingmaker it's coming out uh, in a few days if i if i'm not wrong
2: 25th Uh, it will be two days before my birthday
0: marvelous so go check that out and chris it's been a pleasure to have you on the show and hope to have you again soon
2: yeah well thank you i appreciate you inviting me
0: Okay, Nadia, we're back, and we're going to continue on with the mailbag. Last week, we talked about the PlayStation Classic, reassess the PS1, uh, PS1's kind of RPG legacy. We did, mm-hmm. we added Pokemon Gold and Silver to our top 25 RPG countdown, which will continue next week. But JohnnyBoy407 says, I played Wild Arms for the first time a couple years ago and had a really good time with it. It's a fun extension of 16-bit RPG sensibilities with some ugly triangles in battle. What I remember most about the battles is that it actually pays off to have longer fights. You get access to better skills as you go. Makes it pretty rewarding to think the fight's through and set up.
1: Oh yeah, that's right. Um yeah, if you the longer you're taking battle, the the that's how you have get access to your really strong skills. So it, it really does pay off, especially during a boss battle. Uh, but yeah, that's a good point. I forgot about that. It's a it is definitely an extension of sixteen bit RPGs, and given the time it came out, that's not a surprise at all.
0: No Phantom Pain, No P says, uh, has some suggestions for games that they would like to see on the PlayStation Classic. Nadia, are you, remab- are you ready? Uh huh. Eminem's Shellshocked, Revolution uh, like X, M- Cabela's Big Game <laughs> Hunter Ultimate Challenge, War Gods. Brian Lara, Cricket99, Shrek Treasure Hunt, Cool Borders 4, NASCAR... Yeah, okay. Yeah, this uh, started Jedi off the of rails. Power Battles,
1: ooh. <laughs> this went off the of rails Get Master
0: Ter- Masters of Terrace Cassie on here.
1: Stat. Oh, God. Wasn't that, like, the biggest disaster Star Wars suffered since the prequels?
0: Uh, there are a lot of bad Star Wars games, for the most part. Just check out Yoda stories sometime. No, it's okay. <laughs> and Jedi Power Battles was real bad as well, but uh I, that that is to say the playstation had a lot of garbage because the playstation dramatically relaxed the standards for releasing games on it it did yeah i
1: mean to be fair it's not like the n64 wasn't hurting for garbage either but it was pretty bad on the playstation
0: i remember standing in GameSpot stop and sorting through this big old bin of bargain basement playstation games that were being sold for one to five dollars yeah. And seeing games like the ones you just described, which were self-evidently be... horrible. Okay, when we're talking about m M&M, and are we talking about the candy or the wrapper? The, 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 <laughs> the, the candy. M&M's. Oh, okay. Get it? Okay. M&M's. Shell-shocked. Get it? Yes. Uh, okay, I get it now. Uh, candy she- shell. Shell-shocked. See, song got paid 000, 000 it works on so one. many levels because shell-shocked is a term. Okay, you get what I mean. Too bad, for the, too bad the game sucks. I didn't know that there was something called Batman Gotham City Racer uh, I, I vaguely recall That being a thing How could it not have been a thing The Simpsons wrestling was apparently awful Bob yeah. Mackie would tell you that much uh, And also, also Austin Powers pinball but. <laughs> Oh god save us from the 90s <laughs> right uh satellite of love oh by the way like just as an aside my favorite scene of the original Austin Powers and it's an amazing scene today is Austin Powers trying to deal with the advanced technology of 1997 <laughs> as well, a guy from the 60s uh, it plays so much better even now it must yeah he should come up here it's it's almost as good it's almost as good not quite as watching back to the future and watching Marty McFly complain about the fifties as a guy from nineteen
1: eighty five. No. Oh. oh Lord, I'm so old.
0: But Satellite of Love says, I can figure out why most of the new Dark and Steel Pokemon are endgame, which is largely in Kanto, where those types weren't before. <laughs> oh, that's an interesting point. Probably because they were yeah. new for the most part and kind of high level, like stuff like Steelix, you had to evolve from the yeah. original Onyx. So and also, I mean, giving steel and dark type Pokemon to original trainers uh, uh, spiced it up a little bit. Yeah, Steelix is awesome. You think so? I like his design. I know he probably
1: sucks. As so if I went to Smogon, he'd probably like laugh at me and probably shoot me in the face. But uh, I just like his design. <laughs> what?
0: <laughs> uh, my greatest battle triumph ever was against Steelix. <clears throat> oh, did? It, um, had to do? With, I was like, in the, the middle do? of a tournament, and. It was just my Gengar versus their Steelix and I was using a uh-huh. build that had substitute. And I was continuously going at a substitute and they were breaking it with uh, and they were breaking it with rock slide. And my goal was to go behind a substitute and be able to use focus punch to take it out. Right. And but they kept knocking out the substitute and I was running out of HP. But on the final turn I Use substitute. Oh no, I didn't have enough HP, so I had to just use Focus Punch and pray. Their Rock Slide <laughs> missed. Oh, and I was able to land Focus Punch because Focus Punch requires like that. You're not a- That if you get hit, it interrupts the Focus Punch. But if you right. are able to use it, you'll do a ton of damage. And Focus wow. Punch substitute Gengar was a build that people used back in. Ruby and Sapphire, but I digress. And yeah, the rock slide missed. I got the focus punch off. I did critical hit. I took out the Steelix. Holy crap! That's like
1: on the level of uh, Twitch Plays Pokemon with the uh, the Pidgeot that uh, the, a Voltorb used explode and the, it missed the Pidgeot, and that's why the Pidgeot was named Jesus
0: thereafter. Back in back in uh, the days, those days of battling, we used to call that hacks, <laughs> as in like- H A X. Yes, yes, as in somebody hacked the game. You hacked the game. You have been hacked. Yep. Yeah. yeah, that was hacked. Yeah, that just was hacked on a multiple of levels. Yeah. Uh, Kid Gorilla says, "P.S. Classic. I wouldn't be surprised if one of the Tales games is on there. Namco was an early install stalwart Sony partner. By extension, I have a feeling yeah. the game list will be broken into five unequal parts. Capcom, Konami, Namco Square, Sony published. So my best guess for RPGs would be." FF7 Wild Arms, of course. One of the two Tales games, probably the first. Either Parasite Eve, Legend of Dragoon, Symphony of the Night, or Breath of Fire 3. I think Legend of Dragoon is a given.
1: Yeah, I think Legend of Dragoon, this is going to happen, so we may as well just let it happen.
0: Just let it happen, yeah. Just let it happen. Sketchlayer Josh, I actually played Legend of Dragoon recently, and it's fine, (laughs) (laughs) as part of a compilation like the playstation classic could be you know fine Fine. it reminded me a lot of killzone actually sony throwing a lot of production values chasing a big hit and ending up with something entirely competent but also somewhat soulless speaking of psx rpgs we get to hear nadia talking about breath of fire 3 a lot on this podcast but i'm curious what she thinks about the fourth game in the series nadia take it away Oh, oh god, I want to love
1: Breath of Fire 4 so much, but uh, here's the thing about Breath of Fire. Breath of Fire 3 uses sprites, and um, Breath of Fire 4 uses polygons, and f- for some reason that just makes the game feel so much more squished in. Like, I had a really hard time navigating through battlefields and towns especially because everything was so close together. Uh, Breath of Fire 3, you had very limited control of your camera, and the game was really built around that. But Breath of Fire 4, since you do, like, 360 degrees with the camera, I guess Capcom took that as an excuse to say, hey, let's just put wherever we want, wherever we want. And, yeah, I I can't say I like 4 extremely much, and that's a shame. I'm sorry you, you have to hear that from me, but, yeah.
0: Ryder Kicker says, Nadia, there's no way you could have watched Legendary Teeny Dubbed. Even if 4Kids did it back then, it was never aired because this episode featured a gun pointed at Ash. You may have watched it on an anime yeah. VHS.
1: No, I, d- I didn't have a i didn't have a VHS player for a very long time when i was <laughs> when i was living at home. My mother thought they were the devil. Uh, but you uh,
0: lived in Canada, so it probably was under a different distributor, uh, right?
1: Oh, well, that's basically it. Um, I distinctly remember this episode because it was a gun pointed at Ash. You didn't see that sort of thing in children's TV very often. Um, but whereas, I don't know where you guys had what channel aired Pokemon. I guess that would have been WB. Um, well,
0: it was syndicated, so it depends. Okay, see. The, so it was I, local stations during the week and WB during the weekend. I know because I would catch good. new episodes on Saturday morning on WB. I think it was only YTV that was airing
1: uh Pokemon when I was uh around that time when the, ga- when, the when it first came out except in Quebec for some reason they got on Télétoon but uh Oh those silly French those silly French upside down inside out. But uh no I distinctly remember the the episode was there. I don't I can't tell you if they aired it more than once but it uh it definitely happened.
0: All right, and Rider Kicker says, Pokemon Gold came out when I was in junior high school. The previous summer, I learned about its existence in a Hong Kong magazine that was clearly modeled after a Japanese equivalent, and I was shocked by how much more sleek it looked compared to red and blue. How I wish I kept the clip. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I was just astounded by how much it added to the franchise. You could call it People on the Phone, Travel by Train. Fight all the gym leaders and even battle the protagonists of the last game. The Iwata Ass interview says this was supposed to be the last game since Game Freak was already uneasy making sequels, much less a follow up, and it was also the end of an era, as Iwata would shortly become the president of Nintendo. The biggest flaw in the game for me was that the post game was just too easy. I spent dozens of hours in Johto training my party to survive the Ekritik City gym leader and then the Elite Four. When I got into Kanto, every single one just fell to my level fifty team. Heart <laughs> Gold and Soul Silver could have solved that problem, but I don't think they did. Then again, I wasted two hundred dollars on that game instead of Black and White. Heart Gold and Soul Silver had the Battle Frontier, and then they never put it in again in anything except Platinum. Was that uh, was that Heart Gold and Soul Silver,
1: or was that um, or was that uh, Black and White two that had the Battle Frontier?
0: No, the Battle Black and two and White two had the Pokemon World Tournament where you fought every gym leader to date. Okay, that's right yeah Pokemon has a problem with post game content i it really in does. that it you can level your monsters up to level one hundred, but almost nothing almost none of the trainers you fight outside the battle tower are level one hundred and usually the battle tower like the battle tower trainers are cheap that they, they will cheap cheap out your team and it's annoying but Hacks. uh the pokemon that's why the battle frontier and the Pokemon world tournament really stand out because they are two amazing pieces of post game content where uh your levels are actually matched and you have to work kind of hard to win. Right. And especially the Battle Frontier, like I never actually got all of the all of the prizes in that game cuz it was actually pretty hard. Like really hard mm-hmm. to get. I got the basic badges, but there were a whole level of uh there were silver badges and I think there were gold badges, and getting the gold badges was really hard. Like it was extremely <laughs> difficult. So I I I always wish that they would bring that back, but they never will, because uh, yeah. according to the Pokemon lore, the Battle Frontier is only in Sinnoh and Hoenn. Oh, Pokemon Company! <laughs> they won't put it anywhere else, and I, I don't understand. I don't we have this understand. idea that works. Let's not use it anymore. Yeah, so this is a great idea. It's, it's Let's. It's just trash like. It. Axel God is a U.S. Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever podcasts are sold. Please subscribe to us. Please leave us a nice comment. Rate us on iTunes. The more we're rated, the more we're commented upon, the more visible we are. And we love hearing your comments. If you like the podcast, tell us. It's always good to hear from the fans. Got a lot of nice feedback on the last episode, by the way, Nadia. People seem to really dig it, which was really great. Hooray! Well, we were really talking in our wheelhouse last week. We were talking about Pokemon and PlayStation Classic. And PlayStation, yeah. Yeah, we
1: were kind of in the zone, weren't we?
0: Uh, Tons of great stuff, as always, over on US Gamer. I already talked at some length about the week of Pokemon in which we celebrated the 20th anniversary of Pokemon with all kinds of articles. I talked about the original... Battling in Pokemon Red and Blue when Tauros was king. Uh Jeremy Parrish wrote a really great look back on uh he talked to Yuji Hori about uh the difficult road of liberating RPGs from costly computers with Dragon Quest. Mm-hmm. Uh like the the process of that is really interesting. That's part of our history of RPGs series. Uh, there's, of course, my Valkyria Chronicles 4 review, which you should check out. And then there's also this whole Bowsette thing. I <laughs> I don't get it, Nadia. <laughs> don't that was get a, it.
1: That was like Tom, like, crack of dawn practically saying, hey, hey, you have to write about this Bowsette thing. I'm like, this what thing? What are you talking about? Who? Bowsette? What? Oh, my God. People are thirsty. People are thirsty for Bowsette. They very much are. And Japan, apparently, it's just... Totally in love with this Bowsette thing, especially.
0: Uh, Mike also wrote a nice little timeline and tribute to Telltale Games, and uh, you interviewed Koji Igarashi on the Bloodstained Ritual of the Night in indie game development. Yes. Which is now live on the site. Okay. So we'll be back next week, as always. And until then, for naughty and myself, thanks for listening. Until next time, happy adventuring.